Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. My guest this week is the legendary South African broadcaster Dan Moyani. Dan is the host of Morning News Today on South African independent TV channel ENCA, where he works four days a week. He's also the head of corporate affairs at MMI Holdings. Dan got his breakthrough working with the English service of Radio Mozambique after leaving South Africa in 1979 in the wake of the Soweto student uprising that took place a few years before that. In our chat, he gives a vivid account of that historical day in Soweto on June 16, 1976, a day that changed South Africa forever. We also spoke about the death of Samora Michelle. He was meant to be on the plane carrying... Michelle and his party, the plane that crashed under mysterious circumstances. Dan was bumped from the plane at the very last minute and then ended up reporting from the site uh, for the BBC uh, World Service. He also spoke about his reflections on post-liberation South Africa and his early disillusionment with the ANC, the challenges facing the media industry today, and the ongoing lack of senior black executives in the South African business environment. Please now enjoy my chat with Dan Mayani. Um, Dan, you're a, you, you wear a number of hats these days. You're an executive of MMI. You hit the, the vice president, is it, of corporate affairs. You, you're a broadcaster. You're on the, on the news, uh, as you say, four, four mornings a week. And you are the chairperson, if I'm... No, not mistaken, at Glasshouse Communication, which yes. is a PR company. So you straddle a number of worlds, and I'm hoping to get into that. But let's start with broadcasting. Um, from what I can gather, you got your break or your start. Was it working for Radio Mozambique? Is that is that a correct understanding? Yes, very correct. How did you end up in Mozambique? I left South Africa in February 1979, uh, literally fleeing from the security police at the time. How old were who, you then? I was 19. So I, you I, were part of that sort of pro the 76 protest generation? Yes, yes, I was there. I was there at Morris Isaacson High School. My leader, Tietze Mashinina, I was in his debating uh, committee. We, were, we formed the same debating team. What do you call it today? Public speaking. Uh, schools would engage in that. Yeah, I was there in 1976. Then I left the country in February 1979 after being on the run in and around the townships in Soweto and uh, and, the, and what we know today as Ekuruleni, with the East Rand, the right. old days, Katlehong, and staying at family and relatives. You and were just places. running from house to house, house on to a regular house basis. Time, yes, because um, the security police at the time were looking for anybody who was still around in the country who was involved in 1976 and was continuing with activism. Uh, with activism on the ground as young students. Mm. So I ended up in Mozambique in 1979, February. That's how I got I got uh, I got there. Um, and your parents, what are they doing uh, at that time? I mean, uh, both my parents were never they, went were to they school. Active people themselves? No, funnily, no. Uh, I like against millions of other of other families and parents. Our parents were just going about their normal work. Some of them were aware. My father was a staunch Christian. Mm. And through his faith, I mean, they used to pray for a church. They would pray for Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, and uh, others who were on, on Robben Island, you know, the Govan Beckys of this world, okay. the Ahmed Katradas of this world, and uh, their church service would have that. And uh, uh, there was a, 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 a lady, uh, uh, Mrs. Mkwai, whose husband was a senior ANC uh, uh, member, Wilton Mkwai. He died some years ago. Okay. And uh, when he was in prison as well, my, my, my father used to go and visit there. They would go and visit her, you know, and she was a member of the church. And uh, now and again, they would pray hmm. at, at church. And at, at, at churches mainly in South Africa, especially in the 70s. Uh, I don't want to speak about the 60s because I was still very young, but my recollection as a young person in church in the 70s would sing Nkosi Sigeleli Africa, would right. pray for those who are in jail. Hmm. So there was a general awareness. And, and, and my father used to say to me, you know, be careful what you do, you know, uh, uh, because the way things are, Mandela's going to die in prison. So mm. we don't want to lose you. So there was those kind of conserv conservative caution and stuff like that. 
And finally, my father used to listen to Radio Freedom at home at night. Uh, you should o- he would open the airwaves mm. and also Chimurenga Station of Zanu, Zim- which was yeah. now from Zimbabwe. Yeah. So we used to listen uh, in secret in the, in the house because he loved radio. My, I grew up with a man who loved mm. listening to radio. Mm. Um, so what was your... Uh, how did you become radicalized, if I can put it that way? Was that just purely... Um, the circumstances that you kids found yourselves under that you were you fortunate enough to find yourself amongst a very sort of radical bunch of of, of fearless fearless uh, pupils because you were kids yeah we were kids uh, it's it's a combination of a number of factors uh, radicalized uh, as many other uh, uh, school children at the time in the 70s we would attend uh, 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 what was called uh, Student Christian Movement Sessions, SCMs. If you check back, like our current president, Sir Ramaphosa, he was president of the Student Christian Movement chapter in Limpopo at the University of Tefrop at some point. So he used to preach and he used to pray <laughs> in his early days when he was at varsity. If you go back and check. Yeah, so he also played a role to many others, hmm. many others. I'm just using him sure, as a current sure, example. Sure. So we were younger. Uh, 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 and we, there was no ANC, there was no PAC, there was no Communist Party, there was nothing, but there was Black Consciousness Movement. Mm. At our schools, uh, we, would, uh, uh, we would be engaging with, with, with each other, talking about things, and now and again there will be those meetings, either by the Student Christian Movement, where there will be prayers, there will be Bible reading, but there will be discussions about the state of affairs mm. in the country, mm. or it will be under uh, uh, the South African student organization, SASO, of Steve Biko at the time. They would come to schools and talk to us. So you had to be aware. So I was fortunate to be in that space at the time in mm. the 70s, early 70s, when I started in high school, where there will be these kinds of engagement. And uh, these other young leaders, slightly older than us, maybe they were at university at the time, mm. they'd come and address us and talk to us. So one was slowly beginning to be schooled about the politics of the day. But when I was younger, before I even went to school, I was exposed to apartheid because anywhere I would go, I would be asked for my pass, you know? I mean, I'm not very tall, but when you are young and scrawny and skinny, you could attract attention in those days from the, really, from yeah. the police. Yeah. Yeah, they say, hey, you, yeah. wh- you where are you yeah. going? What are you yeah. doing here? Then you have to say, no, I'm in school, I'm coming to a library, or whatever. So those kinds of experiences expose millions of us, not just us and myself as an individual, but millions of us to that kind of thing. That as every youngsters. day. Every hassling. day. And then thirdly, remember when we started the 70s in this country, the Bantu Education Department decided to impose Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. It didn't start in 1976. It started in the early 70s mm-hmm. to them, and they were enforcing it. So there will be meetings. My father at the time was also a member of what they used to call school boards. So each church will have a school board. Today, I think it's a school governing body. Yes, right. That's a new term. So he was in the township. He will be a member of the community because there was a, a primary school on our street. There were actually, there was three in my street. Hmm. There's two, three primary schools. I went to two of them when I was young, in, in White City, Jabavu, in Soweto. So he would go and they'd come back and complain to say, hey, you know, Lama Lana, now they are trying to do funny stuff. These boas are now trying to make us do funny stuff. And I, re- I remember he'd complain and pray. He'll pray about it. He was a staunch Christian. Mm. And then he gave up. I remember he resigned one year. He said, I'm not going to be part of this. We're not going to approve this. So the, he said, I'm not going to be approving the Afrikaans thing uh-huh. at, the, at, the, at the school when, where he was a, a, a school board member, as a member of the local yeah. community. So when things blew up then on that famous day in 1976, I mean, you had an idea that something was building? Did you, were you yeah. aware that yes, yes. something was yeah, yeah. there was an organized protest? There was an organized protest. There were meetings before. Tsietsi Mashinini and other leaders of the Soweto Student Representative Council. It didn't exist before 76, really. It started. Its seed was June 76. People like Khotso, Siatlulo, Den Mutsisi and others and would come to us, and, and, and young leaders like Inos Nguchane from Naledi High School, they'll come and talk to us. So there was a preparation. We had meetings to say, this is what we're planning, this is why. We're not going to tell our teachers, we're not going to tell our principals, we're not going to tell our parents. Mm. And we have to make placards. For the first time ever, 
in my life. I can let me speak for myself, but I would I would hazard a guess and say not many. And not many as well. In the other in the lives of the other colleagues as well, we'd never made a placard before, we'd never marched, we'd never had a protest. You hear about these things. We used to read about them that there was a demonstration overseas somewhere. Because in our school, under Tsietse Machinini would collect magazines and right. we'll, like Time magazines and other to yeah, prepare yeah, yeah. for our debates for okay. public speaking. That's you know, your research. We do uh, part of the research and the like. Yeah, yeah. So you'd get uh, because there was a lot of uh, censorship sure. in this country, mm -hmm. you know. We so we would, that, I think, yeah, but we never knew what we were really going to be. We just knew we we're going to be marching. It's going to be festive. We're going to hand off a, a, a letter, which is today known as a memorandum. Those days we're going to hand up this pay, this letter of demands to the Department of Plant Education about scrapping the use the of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction and also making some fundamental changes to the system of Bantu education. So the response from the police then came obviously as a massive shock then? Yeah, I don't think anybody was prepared for that. Um, I'm just trying to go back into the recesses of my memory and I recall very well, very well, that we were singing down the road from, for instance, I was at Morris Isaacson High School uh, in Soweto, and Tsietse Machinini was schooled there. So at assembly, instead of doing the normal prayer and the announcements, as the principal started addressing, we started singing Kosegdele Africa. So we stopped him in the middle of it. And that was Mr. Matabacha, one of the top, top edu educationists this country has produced under tough conditions of apartheid. Mm. And very good, strong guy, disciplinarian but of performance, but very, very good teacher as well. Mm. Mr. Matabate, he's late now. And uh, he's he said, what's going on? What's going on? And then he jumped onto the, onto the floor where he was standing and said, hold on, this is what's going on. Yes. So we don't want you to be involved. We don't want to put you into mm. trouble. Mm. This is us as pupils, as school children. Yeah. We are going to be marching from here. We are going to Orlando Stadium. We are going to read a letter of demands in public. The media will be there. We want to hand it over to the, to the minister at the time of band education and stuff like that. So there was this now awkward moment and stuff, and we were all excited. And then suddenly, all of us, including me, I had written a placard, Away with Band Education, which we had done and big black letters mm. behind the toilet I at, at my home. I can remember seeing those photographs. There were lots of that, away with band education, away with Afrikaans, mm. down with this and down with that. And then after that, we left. And the principal addressed us, Mr. Mataba, he said, guys, you must behave. You must go and make your demands. Take care. Be and safe. then he supported and be safe. So we left. And then as we left at the gate, we stood there. Remember, there were no cell phones those days to be <laughs> WhatsApping or you doing know. anything. But the word had gone around Amazing. the whole week in preparation. You yeah. know, some of us hardly slept the night before on the 15th of June. It was a Tuesday because the 16th June 76 was a Wednesday. And we chose a Wednesday because normally those days were sports day. So you didn't mm -hmm. have full day classes. You had partial classes. Then you'd go to the field or you'd go to another school and play soccer or whatever, the sports, or it was athletics, whatever it was. So we chose it because of that. So we mm -hmm. didn't have to affect our schooling. Too so much, we're very yeah. mindful of the importance of education. Mm. So we chose a day that will not affect a lot of the classes right. because it's sports day normally on a Wednesday, those years in, the, in Soweto. So we then marched down the road. And I mean, I remember we were singing. People, some people were laughing. It was joyful songs. And we one of the songs at the time I remember we were singing was that we are young in Isizulu, we are young, we are not scared of the bulls, you know. You know, we just sing it down, you know, Tina Silulusha, La La Africa, Asoze Sibulawe, Ilamapuno, Sisebasha, oh, Sisebasha, oh, Siseba. Then we were running down, it's one of the songs that we sang. So there was a festive mood. We didn't know what to until we got to Orlando West, where just at that place today where you find the Hector Peterson Memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we got there, we were stopped. And 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 CAC Machinini went up a caterpillar. You know, those that they use for the roadworks. The bulldozer. The bulldozer. Stopped at the top there. And he said, uh, sorry, we are not allowed by the police to carry on. They say we have no permission. And we were there. said, no. There, you know, I was one of the students who was pretty much close to that. Uh, to that, because uh, you're quite close to the stadium then as well, aren't you? Well, by that stage, well, we still had to cross the bridge over the yeah. railway. You know, where Villagazi Street, the yeah. famous Villagazi Street, is today. Yeah. We were still because that's further down. down. We still had to go down. You go across, yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. The and then go. Yeah. And we were going to pass Orlando, Orlando Stadium, 
Orlando police, but we thought we're not going to cross the bridge. We're going down to there at that big intersection yes. and turn left there. Right. And try and make a way through. Scuttled that road didn't exist those years. Oh, okay, right. It was right. still a felt. Okay, yeah. So yeah. We, we made to avoid the police station at the top on, mm. in Orlando East. Anyway, he says, then people said, no, we can't go. We need to go. And then we, we said, well, let's wait. So he got down to go and negotiate or talk the other leaders. So we're waiting, all of us there. And suddenly, out of nowhere, from the right to the right of where we were, the main road in, 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 in Petheni, to the right, there's a street coming down from another school towards Villagaza Street. A group of kids come running. They are setting the dogs on us, the police. People say, he's injured, he's injured, dogs, dogs. They were setting the police dogs on, on school children. And there was a gunshot, and another gunshot, and another gun. And then suddenly there was this. Oh, goes mad. It just went crazy. I mean, I saw uh, 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 Hector Peterson being put into a vehicle on that main road to try and rush. And I think it belonged to a media, uh, some journalists who were there uh, on the ground uh, to try and help. But I think it was too late, Shit. you know? And that was the start. Yeah. Now, from there, turning back, now we coming from the western side of Soweto, as we call it, deep west. You know, Morris Isaacson is in CWJ, Naled is on the other side. As we come, now we have to go back now, because we're going towards Orlando East. Mm. Yeah. Now we all have to go back. As we went back, all hell broke loose. We started stoning vehicles, government vehicles, government buildings. Nobody said, start, said come, stone it. Just it. it was just the anger up, that went up, over, yeah. the uproar and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, that's the beginning of the, of the Soweto uprising. But uh, interesting, as you say, um, it wasn't a politic, it wasn't a pol uh, under the banner of any political organization no. then really at that stage. I mean, the, as you say, the, the was bigger no influence. ANC no, it wasn't. The bigger influence was the, was black, the consciousness. black consciousness movement yeah. that all of us were, were under. I mean, our salute those days when we shouted black power. Mm. which came from the old days, the civil rights movement in America. Mm. You know, under the black civil rights yeah, movement, yeah. they used to say, you know, all power, you know, black power. Mm. And that's what we used to shout. We never, we didn't, when we started this, we didn't shout Amanda. That came later. We shouted black power. Uh. In the first few days was black power, you know, black power. And then Amanda came on. And I guess the ANC, the PAC, and other liberation movements where they might say something else today. I, have, I haven't done any research myself, but I don't think the... I think they were caught a little bit by surprise mm. by that thing, yeah. number one. They might have known from the intelligence on the ground that uh, uh, the school pupils in Soweto are planning something, and this is what's going to happen. Uh, but I think they were caught a little bit by surprise if it's gonna, it will, will happen or not. Secondly, none of us, not anybody, not even CSC Machine and our leaders, our school principals, our parents expected the police to shoot us. Mm. None of us. Mm. It. Um, it's interesting, I'm just reflecting now, you know, we've had the news today of the, um, of the death of uh, Zondeni Subukwe, Robert Subukwe's Yes, wife, the widow. Oh. Uh, widow, and um, you mentioning now black consciousness, and it seems like a lot of those movements have been kind of erased from our, our history or our, or our current sort of political discourse would do. Would yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, I don't have the details now. Go back to after the 1976, then the liberation movements who are in exile start waking up to the fact that, yeah, now there's a young generation, as the ANC would call us at the time, the young lions mm. of Soweto, uh, and the young lions, of now, this, now that new generation is infusing a new energy into the liberation struggle after a lull of a long time. Not that the movements were doing nothing. Remember, there was a lot of campaigning worldwide mm. against the apartheid regime. Yeah. You know, ANC, PAC, the United Nations uh, going everywhere. And locally, there was this simmering, simmering revolt that then explodes through this, this protest in Soweto. Yeah. So what had then happened? Because there were some brilliant, bright minds. Steve Biko, Dr. Mampila Rampele today, Aubrey Mukwena, Abraham Diro, who died in a bomb blast in, in, in Botswana, who was targeted. There were some brilliant minds. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know? And as this thing happens, uh, you could then see that the liberation movement tapping into, let's call it the new political talent pool. And then many of them who ended in exile, who were lucky enough, like me, could not, would not have been killed, or you know, or arrested. Or, or arrested and jailed and stuff like that. They ended up being then uh, 
I'm going to use this expression, Brogi, being, being, being headhunted mm. by, by the organization. That's good. We want that. Being recruited, maybe that's the, uh, yep, the yeah. into right. the ranks. Yeah. So you found that many of them ended up in the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress. And I say, Tietze Machinini refused. He wanted to form his own Azanian um, People's Army, not the old thing, and he wanted to do mm. that. Then he ended up in West Africa, and, 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 and I mean, his life, uh, his history, as we know, became more and more tragic over the years, and he died I outside. I feel bad that I'm not familiar with him, but I'm, I'm definitely going to now read See, it's a machinini. Yeah. Oh, oh see, machinini. Oh. Huh. When he stood up to address us, or to speak, or lead us in my class, for a debating session. I mean, that was eloquence of note. What an orator, charisma. smart thinker, charisma. He also grew up in the Methodist Youth Guild. The, the, the Christian church in this country in the anti-apartheid days played a critical role mm. in assisting uh, to, to, to give um, some level of sustainability uh, uh, to, to the movement. Many political leaders were either brought up in the Christian tradition. Mm. So they opened up those kind of, they allowed people to, to speak their mind. And so Tsietsi was such an orator and he was very smart, but also he was a militant. We talk about activists today, but he was really a militant. I mean, when he said something, let's do this and do that, he, and he did that. Mm. You know, he didn't want to leave the country. I remember one of the last meetings of the SSRC, which took place in, in Morris Isaacson High School. There was a discussion, I was in that meeting sitting there with people like Mephi Murube, who was also in my school, he was my senior at Morris, and they were saying, no, you know, it's becoming dangerous, there's information about this, that we need to make sure that uh, we, they skip the country and, they get, and, and get out. And uh, see, it was saying, no, I'm going nowhere. Mm. We need to fight this fight, we're gonna win this battle. We are also, some of us, naively optimistic <laughs> that we'll defeat the apartheid regime after Soweto uprising, yeah, within a few months, so. another year, a few months, we are there, you know? Just a bit of a, a naivety on our side, because we're very young, as you said, we were kids, okay? Mm. But, then I think he must have understood that it's not, you know, it's, it's gonna it's be very tough. So he left the country, and I think he went via Botswana, and then Koso Siatrulo took over. As, as a new leader, and then later, I think it was Dan Mutsisi, who was also detained later and tortured and, and arrested and jailed, you know, for, for, for a long time. So, 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 Tsietsi Machinini, for me, in my small world of Soweto, stands tall today, still, in my mind, as one of those young lions who rescue, who, who, who risk everything to say, yeah. I'm out there in the front, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the recognition has come in drips and drabs, but I think their place in history can never be forgotten, mm. should never be forgotten. No, good, yeah. So let's jump forward now to Mozambique, to your uh, time there, um, because as you said, you grew up with radio, radio broadcasting, I mean, journalism was something that always you then sort of had developed, uh, I mean, news and journalism was something you developed a passion for. How did you join Radio Mozambique? When I go to Mozambique now, remember, I don't have a metric certificate. I've written my O-levels. I don't have anything to prove that I've done or I've passed. I don't even know if I've passed. Because mm. two weeks after I've written, I'm still waiting for the results, which would come around about March. So it was so. really within days of you yeah, finishing, yeah. finishing, you yeah. went. Yeah, I left. Oh, so I had nothing with me. So then uh, uh, the, the one member of this family said to me, no, let's go to the Fredimo office. There's a Fredimo office that deals with Mozambican mine workers. One of these miners said, let's introduce you to Samora Machel's brother. Okay, B uh, Bonaventura Machel, you can tell him your story and then he can help you with the ANC. So I met Samora Machel's brother, one of his brothers, in 1979, in February, before oh. the end of February. And I'm sitting there in his office <laughs> and stuff. And he, <laughs> like many. In Maputo. No? In Maputo. Yeah. He and many, like many other Mozambicans, had worked in the mines. I mean, Samora Machel's father worked in the mines for a short while, and then he went back to, to, to Gaza in Mozambique, okay? Mm. So Samora Machel was brought by, up by a mine worker who was very close and linked to South African uh, mine, right. mining thing, migrant labor migrant system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so now even uh, I, I met uh, Bonaventura Ma Ma Machel, and then I spoke to him, and, uh, and he said to me, uh, he spoke a bit of Zulu because of the having worked in the mines, mm. And they spoke Shangan and Portuguese, and he said to me, I can't tell you where is the ANC. How can I trust you? Hmm. Maybe you're a spy. He said, if you're not a spy, these were his words to me. He said, young man, I will give you a permit to stay in Maputo for a few months. I'll, I'll give you, they used to call it Guia de Marcha, 
I'll give you a gear the marsha so you can show it if you stopped and it will be valid for the next year. If you're not a spy, he said to me, if you've not been sent here, you're not an agent, as we say today, of the regime, you'll find the ANC. You'll know where to find them. Mm. And they will welcome you. I left that. that. Oh, what am I going to do now? Because I can't walk anywhere and say, you can't go around and say, I'm looking for the ANC. You're going to say, who's this guy? Who's this thing? You know? So I stayed around, and a, a few weeks later, I'm walking around Maputo and stuff, you know, minding my own business with one of the of the guys uh, from this family, you know, we, I'm getting to know them, so we're going out for lunch and we're talking. Then I hear some group of youngsters talking in Sisutu. I'm thinking, did I hear clearly? That's Sisutu. So I said to him, they're speaking Sisutu. So I go close and close, and they're speaking, and I get closer, there's a bit of Sisutu, there's a bit of English, there's a bit of township lingo. I'm getting excited, I'm getting excited. Mm. Then I look, then I recognize one of these guys. No. Yes, believe it or not, I recognize one of these guys, Inos Ngujane. He used to be the leader. He was the first one who was uh, uh, who wrote a letter to the department to say, oh, we don't want Africans, we don't want... And then they went to Naledi High School, uh, four days or few days. Yeah, it was on the 8th of June, around about the 7th or the 8th of June. That the, that's when they, the first police car to be bent in Soweto by students, by pupils, was at Naledi High, when they went to try and arrest uh, Inos Ngujane. And the other students said, you're not coming in here. That was the first sign of that resistance now boiling out. Right. So I recognize him. So I say to him, because I don't know, I mean, I just, I just know him by Ino. I said, hey, he knows. Mm -hmm. So he said, hey, I said, how are you? How is it fine? <laughs> I said, no, you don't. You won't remember me. You came to Maurice once with CAC to address us and stuff like that. So I was at Maurice. He said, oh, okay, come sit. Let's talk. What are you doing here? So we talked. There were other guys. I said, what? He said, no, I'm a student at Eduardo Mondrano University. Um, we are funded by United Nations under the aegis of the ANC. I said, but I'm looking for the ANC. He said, well, you found it. Huh? I said, I need to find a job. And then I met Inos Nguchane. Then I met Tom Moyane, who was there as well. This, he was studying economics at the University of Eduardo Mondlane. By September that year, I walked myself. I, I, I wrote a poem about June 16, marking June 16. Uh, and then I walked with that uh, poem to the weekly magazine called Tempo, Ma Tempo in Maputo. And I knocked on the door. I said, you know, my, my Portuguese was very broken. You know, but I cobbled a few words together and stuff. I said, I'm looking for this. Oh, no, 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 no. There's somebody who speaks English. And then a journalist came. His name was Jose Manuel, a, a Mozambican Portu of Portuguese descent. Mm. He came, a very young guy. He said to me, oh, how can I help you? I said, no, I've got this poem. June 16, 76. You know, I was there. I don't know if you can publish it. I've seen that in the back pages. You publish poetry and literature. He said, yes, yes, yes. Come in. So I sat down with him. He said, no, leave it with me. I'll translate and we'll publish it. That's right. Cheers. As I'm leaving, he said, hey, hold on. What do you do? Are you studying here? I said, no. Are you working? I said, no. He said, you know what? We're looking for somebody who can translate um, AFP, Agence France Press, Reuters, AP, all the foreign news agency stuff. Just news wise. Yeah, we have a column to us, the back pages weekly, that just publishes one paragraph. Right. What is the main story? Yeah, yeah. How's your Portuguese? I said, oh, it sucks. I'm learning. He said, no, no, say a few. So I said, okay, we'll work together. Do you want to come and say? I said, oh, I'll come. He said, okay, come back on Monday. I'll introduce the editor. I said, cool. Yeah. I said, hey, my lucky day. And so that I was left. the start of your journey then. Yes. Then I went back that Monday. Jose Manuel introduced me to the editor. And he said, nah, I don't think we should we can afford to employ somebody. It's okay. Don't worry about it. So I, didn't, I never got the job. Then Jose Maida said, listen, come to dinner tonight at my place. I've got another brother of mine, Fernando Lima, and he works for the Mozambique news agency in Portuguese. Maybe there's something there. I, I had a rumor that they might be starting something in English. I said, okay, cool. This is, this is September 1979. Then I walk, I had a dinner with them. I met Fernando Lima. If you can Google Fernando Lima today, you'll know who I'm talking about. He's one of the top Mozambican uh, journalists today, uh, commentator and stuff of Portuguese descent. He said to me, oh, you know what? We are starting an English service, but the guy who's starting it uh, is, a, is a Scotsman, Ian Christie. He was in Scotland and Tanzania, and he and his wife are going to start this thing. It's a small thing, but come and just talk and see. You have no journalism experience. I said, nothing. Have you ever worked? I said, no. Uh, just, I'm looking for something to do. And then I went, the next day, I went to the Mozambique News Agency offices. He introduced me to Ian Christie and Francis Christie, who later became very good friends of mine and of the family over the years. And 
And they said, fine, we, we, you, you know, we just need for somebody who can write English. Can you write? Yeah, how's your Portuguese? I said, well, very basic, but I'll try and make sense of it. So they gave me a paragraph. So I made sense of it because one of the subjects I did before I left the country here in 1978 was Latin. Okay. I never wrote the exam, but I studied Latin as well. Yeah, so Latin is the base for yeah. some of those languages like Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish today. Oh. So that helped me a lot. So then I started working in the Mozambique News Agency as an intern. They call it stagiario in Portuguese. So uh, like checking me out kind of thing, mm, you know? Like a sort of uh, apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah, kind of stuff. So I started there slowly. By the end of that year, 1979, Zimbabwe was going to become independent. The deal had been done in Lancaster House conference. And then uh, Mugabe was, Zanu was based in Maputo. They were going to go back in February. When they went back, their shortwave frequency that they were using to broadcast Chimurenga was in Maputo. Many people didn't know that. Hmm. And they thought it was somewhere in the bush. It was in Maputo. It used to be the old LM radio that used to play music yeah, in yeah, South Africa. Right. So those, wa those wavelengths were now, that those frequencies became available. So Frelimo decided that the... The, the, when Mugabe goes back, Zanu goes back to then Salisbury, now Harare, they will use those frequencies to start an English radio station to counter cool. apartheid propaganda in the region and broadcast United Nations material and um, material from other radio world radio stations that mm. you could not hear in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Okay? Sure. Then Ian Christie was asked to start that. By then he said to me, then come and work with me in radio. Wow. The rest is history. My goodness. I read somewhere that you actually reported then on the death of Samora Michelle. Mm -hmm. Was that for Radio Mozambique or was so for BBC? By the time Samora Michelle died in 1986 in October, I was also a correspondent of the BBC in okay. Mozambique. That must have been quite a difficult time for you then. You know, the Samora Michelle uh, story is one of them that uh, bo bothers me a bit because. I don't know if you will ever find out what happened. Uh, and I, I'm one of those people who's biased, and I declare my bias publicly, because he, that plane didn't fall just because they made a mistake. Not a single commission has concluded, you know, with certainty, or given us a final conclusion to say, this is what happened. It's this happened, but there are other question marks. Whether you look at the, at the Margo Commission of Inquiry in South Africa that looked into that, or you look at the Armando Gebuza Inquiry that looked into that in Mozambique, there's still there's gaps. Okay, but that being said, um, I have also a personal link to that plane because I was supposed to be on that plane with Samora Michelle with the ministers to go to Lusaka. Ian Chris had negotiated with the Minister of Foreign Affairs to give one of the seats to me to one and generally And he said to me, you were with Samora a few weeks ago when he made the threats, you cover that for us. I need you to do, do the, the follow up. to follow up in Lusaka and see what the front does. I was excited. I'd packed my suitcase and stuff like that. And the call came just before, I, actually Ian was gonna drop me at the airport. God. I saw his car coming to park. I said to, to, to my wife Odette, I said, great, cheers, cheers, great, oh, travel well, see you on Sunday when you come back, blah, 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 good. And Ian comes up, and I'm going down, he said, oh, I'm sorry, Dan, I'm not picking up. The presidency wanted another advisor to go, and the only seat that foreign affairs could sacrifice was our seat. But national radio in Portuguese is going. So they are taking less journalists, and from the radio Mozambique, they'll take the national one, and they said we can translate from there. I was so upset. Shit. Because it was going to be one of the biggest stories I've covered. Yeah. yeah you know, as a young person yeah. at the time, and it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I was only 27 years old, you know, great. Anyway, it didn't happen, and then I went to spend the weekend at my mom-in-law with my wife, just outside Maputo for the weekend and stuff like that, until the news broke on Sunday, on Monday morning that the plane had come. And there were no cell phones, but I got to the radio that early in the morning, Ian was there already, said, Samora hasn't come back. And he said to me, I am bloody happy you're not on that plane when the news broke that 33 people had died in that plane. And one of my best friends, a Mozambican photographer, Azariash Ingwane, died, perished in that, in that flight. Mm. And we had spoken. He had said to me, when I'm in Lusaka, he's going to make sure I get a picture with Kaunda. You know, we're, you know, we are young and we're jealous. Yes. Hey, man, you know, what do we call them today? Selfies. You couldn't <laughs> take selfies those days. So I don't have a single picture with any of those leaders. But anyway, that's just by the by. So 
But then I'm saying, you know, then you're covering it as a news story and all that oh, this is in your no. head. I mean, yeah, that yeah. must have been a real... No, it was tough. I had, it's goosebumps. I mean, when I saw Marcelina dos Santos walking into the building in tears to make the announcement to the nation that Samora Machel is no more. I mean, that Radio Mozambique building, it's, it's a big, beautiful building built during Portuguese colonial days. It's built of marble. It's strong. Marble is cool. It, f it, it froze for a moment. It was icy for a moment when the news came through. And I mean, Mozambique was never the same again. Literally, Mozambique was never the same again. You returned then in which year to 1991. South Africa? 1991. Uh, 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 Nelson Mandela is released in 1990. Actually, the day Mandela walked out of jail and from Polsmo, it's Victor Feste today, I think, mm. in the prison. And um, I said to my wife, I'm going back home. This is about 12 years ago, so I'm going back home. Mm. We all go. But we didn't know how and what. And my wife said, you know, where are you going to work? Where are you going to live? I'm not live, staying with your, with your parents, with the in-laws. So she was looking after her home, you know. She said, no, no, no. With no security for me and the kids, I'm not going. So I came back alone. Okay. Uh, uh, but first we came back with her to visit in April. And I was detained for three hours at the then Jan Smart's airport and interrogated about what I've been up to, what I've been doing and stuff like that. My asking all kinds of things at the, at the airport. The people who came to fetch me thought I'd been, uh, I'd been um, arrested. So they phoned the ANC office to say, Dan landed with the flight, he's got his wife, he's got his, his son and, uh, and stuff like that, but uh, we're not seeing him now. The plane landed long ago, but he's not coming out. I, I don't know what happened, but then I was, let to, I was let go. I was let go. Other comrades used to disappear at the airports of entry. They were kidnapped and uh, hijacked and tortured and sent back to their places after some time. I was lucky again. That was April 91. And then I went back to, to Maputo um, with the promise of a job with, to work with Rob Davis at the University of the Western Cape with Peter Vale in the Center for Southern African Studies because I had a proposal for research to compare the road to democracy for Mozambique and for South Africa mm. because things were happening at the same time. Mm. 1990, Mandela is, is released. Freely Morenamo signed some agreement in 1990, which was finalized in 92. Okay? So I was thinking, it's like the roads are, are similar. This co I could see some comparisons between these two countries. You know, from a one-party apartheid state, because I don't care what, uh, what people will say today, South Africa was never a, multi a democracy, a multi-party. It was no. a one-party state, one national party mm. dominated in a militaristic way. And from a one-party socialist state uh, with Frelimo in Mozambique, that transition fascinated me. So I made a proposal about that, and, uh, and, and, and Rob Davis and Peter Vale accepted it. So I was going to go and work in, at the University of the Western Cape, and I was going to do a, 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 a master's in political science to finish that, uh, that, that, that program. But when I came back, uh, after the, we'd agreed, my father got very ill. And he just said to me, my son, you've been gone for 12 years. Now you're coming back. You're going so far away. I've never even been to Cape Town myself. Mm. So I won't see you again. So I thought, oh, oh, man. oh man, exactly. Oh, man. And I spoke to my wife. She said, well, what are you going to do? Got to stay with him. Yeah, got to stay with him. My sister was a casual laborer working at Checkers. She was a t uh, in the tills. My mom had just been retrenched. And then... There was no breadwinner, really. My sister was not, uh, not coping. So I'm coming back. My father looked to me to be the breadwinner now of the family. And I'm the only son and the oldest son mm. and my sister. So I said, okay, I'll have to make other plans. And then while I'm doing all of that, uh, I remembered that uh, while I was doing work for the BBC, I got to know about Radio 702. Right. So I asked my father, where's Radio 702? He said, no, it's there by Elof Street in Joburg. Albert uh, Street. And so we went there and I asked to see the editor, a gentleman by the name of Mike Wills. I said, I'm Dan Moyane. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, once we, we crossed to you about an attack in northern Mozambique, you filed a story for us. I said, yeah. I said, oh, how are you? Fine. I, I said, I'm looking for a job. <laughs> he said to me, oh, are you South African? I said, yeah. He said, oh, okay. He said, hey, I said, I don't have a job. But uh, let come back next week. Let's talk again. I said, cool. Then I went away, and I went back the next week, and he said, okay, I'll give you a 12-week contract from, from uh, August this year. I'm going to give you a 12-week contract and uh, up to early December, and then let's see what happens. And that's how I joined 702. How do you reflect on just thinking about that uh, master's proposal? 
How do you reflect now on South Africa's journey um, of democracy, our, our ongoing journey, if I can put it that way, because surely it's not over yet. But how do you how do you reflect now on the last, in terms of what perhaps your hopes and anticipations were being a member of the ANC, being coming out of that student struggle, that sort of, I suppose from idealism to some kind of then reality of liberation to the present day. Okay. Um, I witnessed an in interesting behavior uh, around 1991 in that transition from some ANC comrades at the time. I noticed some interesting behaviors. I witnessed uh, disturbing kind of trends of people uh, no longer uh, like wanting to be um, supportive or you know solidarity and stuff like that. I noticed that change it, it, for me. So early. So early. I noticed it, and I said to my wife, "I'm leaving politics. I'm not going to be involved in politics anymore. I will look for a, a job in the private sector, and I want to build my profile as a media personality." Because when I left this country, I was just a high school pupil. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows me except my family and my friends. And now I have one. Uh, people in Ghana, in Kenya, uh, in Tanzania who listen to BBC World Service, they've heard my voice, they've heard my reports, but not in my country because my country, people don't pick up shortwave radio mm. uh, like they used to because they, we have moved to medium wave and FM in this country. And uh, some of those signals were blocked by the apartheid regime. Okay? So I'm, I noticed those, a few incidents, and my gut told me at the time that it's not going to be with me. My life is not going to be in the political field. My life is going to be in the media field and in the private sector. So having made that decision, which was hard for me to make, and uh, some people thought to me, oh, you know, you're betraying us. What's going on? I said, nah, it's not me betraying anybody. So when I look back, I look at the parts of Mozambique, I look at the parts of Fredimo, parts of South Africa, parts of the ANC. Inter still today, I think if I had done my master's thesis on that, at least there's some similarities. Mm. There's some differences, but there's some similarities. We had a low-intensity uh, uh, civil war in this country. Right up to, uh, beyond Bui Patong massacre, to Chris Hani's assassination in April uh, 1993. Mm -hmm. Right up to election day, people were dying in this country in dozens, and we were killing each other like, 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 like crazy. Mozambique has battled with a low-intensity civil war for years. Okay. And we don't have a, a low-intensity civil war anymore. In Mozambique now, until recently, there was an issue. There was something. And Afonso Lakama has died. Now there's a new deal on the table. Mm. It looks like Americans have stepped in to facilitate that deal. That's what I've picked up from some news wires. So, so we've battled with these kind of challenges. But the biggest thing that we've really I've seen and I've observed, the more Frelimo stayed in power, the more ANC has been in power in a funny way, it seems to be still re removed from the people on the ground. Instead of, it says it wants to look for after the people on the ground. They say the right things, they write the right policies, but if you look at what's actually happening, there is a clique or a group of people who benefit. In our country, in South Africa, we have a bigger middle class than Mozambique has in terms of numbers. I mean, there's 57 million South Africans or 56 million South Africans, and uh, there's 30 odd million, uh, if not 40 million uh, Mozambicans. So there's more of middle class in terms of numbers. Just just talk about numbers. Mm. But but the gap between the haves and the have-nots has become bigger and bigger in the last 24 years of democracy instead of, of slowing down. Mozambique is the same. We talk about industrialization today in this country and the region and stuff like that. It's not happened. So when I look back, I'm thinking, there are things that have happened that are good, the laws have been changed. Mm. Nobody stops me and asks me for a passbook unless they think I'm a criminal or there's a crime scene and I'm, there's a getaway car. But generally, uh, freedom is there. Politically, you can say what you want, there's freedom of expression and stuff like that. But if you think about the, the lot of the people, mm. Samora Marshall used to talk about m uh, the, the enemies will be misery, poverty, and illiteracy. We need to uplift our people like that. But you look at the rate of illiteracy in Mozambique today and poverty and misery. It's like since 1975. 
But you look at the sec. There's a section of Frelimo linked people. They are leadership. Very comfortable. And, well, very comfortable. Look at the ANC today. You look at the section. There is, there'll be a section of the of the movement of the ANC where people are comfortable and they're fine. And those who are linked to them, those who can access them, also comfortable and stuff like that. And you look at the majority of our people today and you see how tough it is. Yes, they've tried as a government to make certain decisions like social grants because without social grants, many people would be really, really down in the dumps. They're already in the dumps. I don't know how low they would go. Mm. Okay, So you could take some of the good things and stuff. So when I look back, I'm thinking liberation came but our biggest task, really, is to really uplift a lot of the people. Yeah. And I don't know how you, whatever language you use, whatever terminology you use, it's really about uplifting the lot of the people and identifying what will be the key priorities. I mean, we fought in 1976 and much for better education than, than Banjo education. You look at our education system today. For me, it is a national disgrace, Nicholas, that in 2018 we have a president who stands up and says we need to fix pit latrines in our schools. I was about to say For that me, that for me as a citizen. Yeah. Okay? Now, and the, it's by 2030. What have, how many years from now to 2030 is 12 years? We've been in government as ANC, okay, for twice that time. What's going to change? Why couldn't we do it before? Why couldn't we identify? What's a priority in education? To improve the infrastructure, to do all those things. So it took, it took Lumka Mketwa in the Eastern Cape, five-year-old Lumka Mketwa. It took five-year-old Michael Komape in, in, in Limpopo in 2014 eh, to die in a pit latrine for us to say we must fix that. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. So I'm saying we're making strides, we've done certain things, but it's just that... The, the fruits of the liberation are not really being enjoyed by everybody today. We have more challenges. That's really on. I mean, I live a comfortable life. I'm in the middle class. I work, I do this, I do that. And I look around. I've got family cousins who live in squatter camps in 2018. And some of them are older than me. And they were there as well, throwing stones with me in Soweto in the, in the 76. Mm. <laughs> so I'm saying, how long are we going to take to really do the right things? I mean, what stops us as leaders in this country, to define for us, as South Africans, black and white, one vision, clear direction, here are the priorities for the next five years, and roll up our sleeves and do it. Where does uh, business fit into this uh, progress, do you think? Because there still seems to be, and I mean, you sit on, on the board of, of, uh, of a very large um, uh, insurance company. Uh, I'm not sure what the makeup of that is, but I can't imagine... I can imagine that there's not too many black faces in the, in the room when you have those meetings. And it always does amaze me when I read the Business Times and see all the new appointments. It's, it's, it's still very white male. Yeah. Okay. Um, where, 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 where does business fit into yeah, this Thanks role? for promoting me, but I won't take the credit. I, I'm not a board. <laughs> I'm not on the board. I'm not a director of the company. I'm just an executive of the company. But you ask a very valid point, uh, Nicholas. Um, corporate South Africa in totality has not transformed. It's not shifting. Now, you can ask ourselves, is it our fault in terms of political leadership? Or is it is it, is it uh, their fault as well? I think if you want to look for blame, you would find it in both, in both places. Uh, corporate South Africa, for me, would act differently and better if there was this clear uniting vision without forgetting that we are in a capitalist society, whether we like it or not. We are in a capitalist system, so it, is, it will always be about profits as well. So that's what they, they look after. Number two, I think I don't understand it. You can't say in 2018 you can't find qualified black people. I don't understand it. I'm sitting here telling you now. And I've said it in my own environment. Where you, but you, no, don't tell me you can't find somebody black. That's, that's <laughs> there are people, okay? Are you willing and open and ready to embrace that or not? And I think there's a bit of resistance. Corporate South Africa is resisting at different levels. Resisting in terms of its composition that you've alluded to, if you look at that, every year the employment equity report that comes out from the Department of Labor shows that the bulk of the people who make strategic decisions when leadership positions in corporate South Africa remain as white males across the board. You look at the JC listed entity. So that's not to be debated. The question is why? So I always ask myself why. Is it that there's a failure 
of collective leadership to drive everybody together as Africans for the common future, because we're in the same boat, okay, or not. The other place where I always see, and I'm thinking, but why are they doing it like this? South African corporates are not investing in South Africa today. Billions of friends that are in capital that they are holding, that is invested, but they're not investing it. But they will take it and go invest in Rwanda, or Uganda, or Mozambique, in the, in the gas fields in the northern Mozambique, or somewhere else. So I'm thinking, what is it about them that they, doesn't make them to have confidence? And now if you say there's no confidence in our, in our economy, and we are a South African businessman, and we are sitting on 20 billion on capital, 3 billion on capital, whatever the amount is, shouldn't you show the way and put the money, say, this is my home, this is my country, I'm going to put 1 billion in infrastructure development? So there's a problem there. I think it's a problem of mindset. So I don't know who's pulling the strings. That is why sometimes I smile when we read news and we about white monopoly capital because I think it's not a fallacy. No. I think it's a reality. So because I would make a call as a if I was a CEO of a listed entity that's got one billion rent in excess capital. I'll say, guys, let's find infrastructure projects in South Africa that we can invest in. Work with the government so we, those infrastructure projects can create can create jobs. We have to fuel this economy. It's not a government's job alone to fuel the economy. Policies exist and stuff like that. There's a huge reluctance or resistance from corporate South Africa broadly to transform. After 24 years, we shouldn't be talking about this. We shouldn't be talking about the lack of gender representation of black people on boards, of capital in injection. We expect foreigners in Brazil, in Russia, in India, in China, in Europe to come with their money here when we don't put our money in our own country. I mean, we're sending a wrong message. So I, I don't know why they're doing it, and I'm not a, um, an analyst of sorts that I can say this is, but the fact is it is happening, and it's disappointing, very disappointing, because we could be so far as a country. But I'm gonna go back to the other thing. If we had clear vision, if somebody could define for us and rally us around that vision and give clear direction. Some kind of national identity. Or yes, or something, and say, this is a national agenda. We are about this going forward, okay? And this is what we need to do. And these are the priorities. And I need you in the private sector to do this for us, and I need commit and stuff like that. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Nearly 40% of our people are jobless. Okay, the stat says 27,2. Those are the ones who are jobless but there are those above that who are no longer looking for jobs. That takes that figure to around 37, 38%. That means nearly four out of every 10 working age South Africans today are not doing anything, are not productive, bad for the country, bad for the economy. Even on that, you prioritize it. Yeah. It's just in one example. You could find these things and say, here's a national agenda, let's get together. But currently, oh, it's disappointing. It's really disappointing to see that private business plays its role to a certain extent, but they could do more in transforming in also investing in the country, definitely. Um, you mentioned, uh, we need to wrap up, you mentioned uh, white monopoly capital, and that sort of leads me to that whole um, controversy, Bell Pottinger, PR companies driving the news agenda, and I'm just wanting to get some reflections from you on how you as a news person, as somebody in broadcasting, how has the, the nature of broadcasting, of news consumption and distribution changed since your days in Mozambique? And what are the challenges now facing disseminators of, of news in trying to get that fine balance? Yeah, the, the, there's a big difference. The big difference for me today is people today are exposed to News, I'm using inverted commas. You can't see me, but you can see me the colors. I'm using news on social media platforms so quickly. Anybody can be a reporter. You and I are sitting here talking in this interview. There could be an explosion outside uh, uh, the building. And um, before BBC, CNN, ENCA, SABC, anybody gets it, you and I will be tweeting about it because we're the visual. Mm. Sometimes then people also use that to create uh, fake news what we know is it's, it's rumors, it's lies, whatever, it's all fake. So the, the speed with which news travels today is different from those days. When, 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 I, w when I started in Radio Mozambique in 1980, in March 1980. So, so today, the responsibility of the media is to verify the source, 
verify the, the facts. I'd rather tell a newsroom to go for accuracy than speed, than haste, and breaking news, and then you have egg on your face, or you're spreading the false news. That's and I always tell people, okay, but who told you this? Ian Christie was a, a Scottish man. He's an editor in Edinburgh, and uh, and also a little bit in Fleet Street. He told me he would never publish a story without three sources. So when I gave him a, a story I'd written in Radio Mozambique in English, he said, okay, what's this? Who says, da, 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 quote, good. If it's a statement, okay, for my department, but when the story is a controversial story, you need at least three sources, verifiable sources, not those that Anonymous. you can tell the editor. Mm. You can tell the editor, no, it's Nicholas, it's so-and-so. You don't have to refer it, but you must assure you, no, 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 look, Nicholas sent me this, and Dan sent me that. Then it's fine, we can publish, because we've got our, we can verify our sources, and you can stand by it. But nowadays, people have got anonymous sources, sources within the ruling party. You just don't know where what is coming out. And because of the speed with which people want to get stuff out, media sometimes ends up being used as a platform to channel agendas. Hmm. And as an editor, you have to stand back and say, can I, can I, just give me a moment, can we check this out, okay? I'm going to use a simple example. Uh, the other day we announced on ENCA the death of uh, the, the rapper, hip-hop artist, uh, Linda Mkise, Pro Kid. Pro Kid yeah. The first thing that went out on social media was that he'd been shot. So now, the newsroom, people say, oh yeah, he's been shot. And then, no, but look at this, check this, check this. We're very good people in, in the newsroom. No, guys, hold on, hold on, let's verify. So if the, he's been shot, the police should know something. So somebody pick a call to the police, no, no, we haven't received any shooting of anything. Okay, so that's how you do it. Mm. And we delayed, we started at six o'clock, we delayed only between half past six and seven, we had a story, and it said, no, he had died of medical reasons, he had a seizure, and that's what the family said. That was it. Now imagine if we had rushed to say, oh, breaking news, mm. a pro kid has been shot. So, so today, that's a battle. That's really the battle. The other battle today is that we've got more and more younger people in newsrooms today than senior people, because senior people in the media, after democracy dawned in this country, moved to management positions. <laughs> That's the, and uh, being a journalist, just being a reporter, as you know, doesn't pay. You don't pay fantastic salaries, but management pays better as well. So there's been that kind of effect. Today, you find that uh, uh, you do have now, yeah, younger, people, younger people then are growing up, they're becoming also more mature and stuff like that, that's helping. So that's another change. You had that, there was, there was a time in this country, in South Africa, where you had a big generalization of things. The other thing is, some of the uh, 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 people think a, a PR release is a new story. A PR release is selling a client story. You're telling somebody's story to say whatever. You can write it nice and well and whatever, and some people take it. Especially, I look a lot at online journalism, what I call online journalism, a lot of copy and paste. Mm. It's, sti it's happening still, you know? And, and then that's where you find this problem of plagiarism. And some people taking bits and pieces of your stuff and plugging it somewhere else, and they don't even accredit you. One of the things I learned early on in Jenny, basic what I want, you must accredit your source. If you didn't come up with it, you must say, Nicholas says this. Don't say, write it like it's yours, or pretend like it's part of it. So you find a lot of that because of this thing of trying to get out there, get out there. There's a lot of pressure Time. on newsrooms. And the last thing, budgets have become smaller and smaller for newsrooms. So you've got a sales and commercial pressure. The owners want a return from their business, Therefore, there's certain pressures as well that has happened. When I started in journalism stuff, those pressures were not as much as they are today because, because people waited to, to, to read that good article that's coming up in the newspaper at the weekend or on Friday or whatever, and they, want, they, they knew that it's this kind of thing. And the yeah. advertisements used to be in the back pages. You never saw. In the front, your first three pages were solid content, solid content. Today, you open a page, the front page, they've got a, the, the, the advertising uh, new price of baked beans or whatever and stuff like that. So so that puts pressure as well on what you can go for and what you can't go for and how you resource your newsroom because your budget is now tighter. You can't get the best guy in town, the best lady in town and stuff like that. So there's, an, there's another, there's, there's kind of a problem. But social media as well has just changed, has revolutionized the speed which we things are happening. But I still preach that rather be accurate than be first. 
Dan, thanks very much for your time this morning. I think we covered most of the bases. <laughs> you got me talking about lots of things I'd even forgotten myself. <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping it's been a useful conversation uh, for you, uh, Nicholas, and whoever's going to listen to this. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. It was pretty intense at times. I thought his, uh, his account of the death of Hector Peterson was just riveting and tragic uh, in that crazy day. And you sort of got the sense of the intensity of that anger that had built up amongst the youth in particular. He's had quite a journey, has Dan Mayani. Please subscribe to Voices from SA and Apple Podcasts where you can leave a comment or rating. Ratings are important for the pod to reach a wider audience. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, wherever you get your podcasts. Please also leave a comment on the Facebook page or via Twitter. I would appreciate your feedback. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. Cheers.